Now I'm going to invite Maddie Graham to come join me and share our scripture reading. Good morning. Uh, Today we're reading Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. All right, kids, you ready to go? Take off, you got it. So uh, I had a little accident before the service today. I'm fine, but my uh, hands-free microphone was mortally wounded. I broke the little wire thing, like just cut it clean off. I turned and it hooked around uh, part of the door, which as my wife knows, only I could come up with a way to like destroy something that way. So we're gonna work with this. Um, It means I'm a little less mobile, but that's probably better for all of us. Uh, So would you join me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you again for your provision this morning. And now we ask for a special provision from you for the reading and hearing, the listening, and the receiving of your word. We come before your word with humility because we know your word is alive and your word always is teaching, always is shaping, always is changing us. And so we pause now for just a minute and we thank you for the way that music and prayer and dedicating babies to you has helped shape us for these moments to come. Would you speak to us now as only you can? We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay. Parents, as we've been studying Song of Solomon, I've been trying to uh, help you guys and giving you a heads up a little bit if some part of the sermon today may touch on something that you may or may not want to talk to your kids about on the car ride home. Today I'm going to mention pornography, and so if you just want to file that away and kind of go, I don't know if I want to talk to my kids about that yet, uh, you're welcome to just hang out, Um, but I think it's a good idea on the front end to sort of mention that. I'm not going to go into any grisly detail, but that is going to come up as part of the subject today because we're talking about Song of Solomon, because it's part of where the text leads. Can you guys hear me okay? Is this working just fine? Okay, cool. Okay, before we talk about something really saucy like that, we got to talk about something benign like baseball. Okay, so baseball fans, right? It's baseball season. We're all excited. Uh, I am not a Yankees fan, but I appreciate what the Yankees are. They are one of the longest lived franchises in the history of actually any kind of sport. And so I'm going to make a claim about the Yankees that is very painful for my heart as a baseball fan. I may cry a little as I say this, but it is good for baseball when the Yankees do well. When the Yankees do well, it is good for the game of baseball. So let me explain. By the way, I'm not a Yankees fan. I'm an Astros fan. And yes, the Astros currently have the best record in baseball, in case you're wondering. Very excited about that. What I've learned over the years of watching baseball is this. The Yankees are a really important team. I got to go to old Yankee Stadium in New York, and it was a really uh, sensory experience. There's never a smell that you smell quite like walking into Yankee Stadium in the middle of the summer. But I got to appreciate how significant they are and their history is as a baseball team. They go way, way back in time. They've had these great stadiums. They've had a very charming fan base over the years. And they've also had some of the most prolific names in the game play for them. So Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig, Derek Jeter, and every Mariners fan, favorite villain, Alex Rodriguez. 
holding down third base for them until he couldn't do it no more. That notwithstanding, they've got a great history and the untouchable distinction of having 27 World Series championships. That is unprecedented in the major sports. Nobody else has that many championships, and it's just disgusting. But right now, they're a really fun team to watch. And again, I say that, and a part of me kind of dies inside, saying that the Yankees are fun to watch. They have some really exciting young players right now. They have this young man playing for them named Aaron Judge. How many of you guys have seen what this young man is doing? He's killing it right now. He's leading the league in home runs. He's six foot seven. He's taller than Tim. Like, he's really tall. He's almost 300 pounds. So he's built like he should be playing for the New York Giants, not the New York Yankees. And he's actually really fun to watch play the game. Like, he's a, he seems to be a guy that has a lot of integrity. He seems to be someone that celebrates his teammates. I put up a video on the Eastside Facebook page that, again, it pained me to do this, but I thought it was fun, where Judge hits this unbelievable home run. Like, he just crushes it out of the park. And he comes back to the dugout, and he's celebrating with his teammates. And everybody's giving him high fives. But because he's so tall, one of the other players gets picked up by another player so he can high-five him at, like, eye level. Like, the short guy gets a little bit of a boost. And I love that because it means they're having fun. Like, they're playing a game together. They're having a great time. Because of the Yankees' history, because of their present state of affairs, they're fun to watch. And part of what makes them fun is they've got this new core of young guys that are really great, and they've got this incredible history. When a historic franchise does well, the whole game does well. Today's text from Song of Solomon is about a woman's commitment and devotion to her lover, and it's within the context of a covenant relationship, one that is blessed and made secure by the love of God. And within the text today are some really important and very practical principles for us to consider, specifically around this idea of the new and the old. We need the new and we need the old for our relationships to do well. With each other and with God, we need to be reminded that God is moving us toward new things while being faithful to the things that he has done in our past. It is tied not just to the present, but also to where we have been and where God wants us to go. We need the old and the new. So the truth of the matter is this. We need the old and the new to thrive in our relationships. And the text illustrates that for us today in a pretty powerful way. You've got three different headings in your bulletin if you want to take some notes on there. Uh, Commitment, steadfast commitment, terra firma, which I'll explain. And then I actually changed up the third point if you want to change it in your notes. The call to memory and adventure. So instead of the call to being present, the call to memory and adventure. I feel like this thing is slowly slipping on me. Maybe not. We'll figure it out. Put your hands up like you're on a roller coaster if you can't hear me. Okay, so turn with me to the text, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. If you would like to start in verse 10, that's the first verse that Maddie read for us. And this will sound familiar if you've been with us uh, through the series. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Why does that sound familiar? Because it's repeated in two other places in Song of Solomon. Is it slipping down? Oh, cool. I'm not making that up. (laughs) Thank you, Tim. Okay, I appreciate it. The author of Song of Solomon uses this refrain, like the refrain in a song, to remind the audience the importance of being mutual in a relationship, mutuality. Now, mutuality is one of those kind of buzzwords that you may read about or something and go, okay, but like, what does that really mean? In the context of today's passage, I mean 
by mutuality, I mean that this relationship, as well as any healthy relationship we're in, married, not married, loving, friendship, whatever, any healthy relationship must be a two-way street. A, mute, a relationship of mutuality means that there is give and take, there's support, there's challenge, there's encouragement. That's how healthy relationships are meant to work. And we see this played out in the text today because if you read through all of chapter 7, the back and forth between the woman and her lover is just so neat. They really just keep affirming each other. They hold on to each other with a lot of respect. And this would have actually stood outside the grain of the time. Back up the camera lens a little bit. And in the ancient Near East, the time when this would have been written, this was a patriarchal society. That means that men were valued far above women. Women were mostly considered to be property at this time. And so this was not something that we would be able to construe sort of in our modern day. So how can mutuality exist? Like if I just said that mutuality is happening in the text, how can that happen in a patriarchal society? Mutuality and a level playing field aren't the same thing. It is still possible to engage in a relationship with someone if you don't have the same level of power that they do. You can still respect them and care for them even if they're your subordinate at work, even if they're one of your children, even if they're someone that just doesn't have the influence that you have. It's possible to love and care for people regardless of our sort of power position over them. In our day, we'd like to think that there's a pretty even sharing of power, pretty much equality between women and men, but we often see this come up in news reports. At the base level, that's true, but we know that typically men get paid more than women. We know that in the workplace, most oftentimes women are overlooked for promotions, and promotions often go to men. My point is that we can sort of stop kidding ourselves that there is mutuality in every corner of our lives. We can also stop kidding ourselves that our world has somehow moved on from the time of the ancient Near East. And the calling within that is not to just say, like, well, we can't fix it. That gives us a great gospel imperative to say, like, actually what God sees when he looks at women and men are people made in his image who are equal. And we need to strive for that through God's call to justice and his call to treat all people with love and with respect. So in part, that's what makes the woman's refrain so timeless. And this is where I think we really get into the gospel in our text today. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. This is, in a way, where the gospel is just so powerfully at work in our passage. Through Jesus, God says to us, those who follow him, those who long for him, you are my beloved and I'm giving myself to you. We are going to have a mutual relationship. I'm giving myself to you. Your greatest joy and flourishing will come when your desires align with me, not with other stuff. And we'll get into that later in the sermon. When your desire aligns for my good design for the world, that's the sweet spot. Women and men, big influence or little influence, lots of power or no power. This is how Song of Solomon, I think, is really helpful because it presents over and over to us this idea that the things of old have not just passed away. We still face challenges in terms of seeing women and men equally. But there's also a timeless word from here that we need to continue to love each other and pursue that kind of mutual love that Jesus Christ gives to us. The old challenges of a patriarchal society have not passed away. But there is new power to make change through Jesus Christ. That's the hope. So take a moment and consider the commitments that you have in your life. You've got commitments to work. If you're a student, you've got commitments to school and to your teachers. If you're a neighbor, we're all neighbors in some way or form. You have a commitment not just to your individual neighbors, but to your neighborhood. And you have commitments within your family. 
because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, which is in the past and is old in one sense of the word, we get to experience his infinite love in our daily lives. And that is always new because it is renewing. It gives us new energy, new power, new courage for the things that we are committed to today. And I just want to offer a word of encouragement. If you're thinking about a commitment you have right now where you're feeling shaky, where you're feeling like, I don't know about this, like maybe you just started a new job. Maybe you've just started a new relationship. Or maybe you've been in something a long time, you've been at your company forever, and you're kind of going, is this it? Is this all that I'm supposed to be doing? Hear this encouragement. If this is where God wants you to be, if this is God's desire for you, you can ask him for renewal in that commitment anytime. He longs to renew us in the things that he wants for us. The stuff that he doesn't want for us, that we are doing anyways, either because we're not listening or because it's just what we've always done, then there can be an attentiveness to kind of being shaken from that or moved on to something new. Ask for renewal and ask for a reminder of your past. Ask for a reminder of how God has been faithful to you in the years behind you. Play a highlight reel of something that God did for you in a miraculous way, in a powerful way, when you're feeling that sense of like, do I need to keep this commitment? Should I maybe make a change? Think of God's faithfulness before you decide to make a change. Last week, I shared a couple of snippets from a story uh, from my life where I went and worked at a camp in Costa Rica. And I kind of use that as a way to illustrate different points in the sermon. I got to tell you, that was really encouraging for me to remember the faithfulness of God when I was a new college graduate and kind of stumbling and fumbling in my life. As I reflected on that season, I was reminded of how good God was to me and continues to be good to me. And so I offer that as just an experience from my own life, that as you reflect on the journey that you've had with God, my prayer is that you'll receive encouragement as well. So that's our first part. Now let's talk about terra firma. What does that mean? That's the next heading. It literally means dry land or solid ground, like where you can put your feet down and you're going to be safe. In the context of today's passage, it means reality. It means real life, like where we're supposed to be. So listen to verses 11 and 12 of our passage with me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. I want to zero in on verse 12 for just a moment. The word love in that particular verse is a word that we've studied several times throughout our, our study of Song of Solomon. Remember, we talked about the pyramid with the three different uh, Hebrew words for love. And at the very top of that pyramid is the word that comes up in the text today, dod, D-O-H-D, which is uh, sexual, intimate love. It's expressed with passion. It's expressed with a longing and a desire that's befitting of that. It's at the top of the pyramid, which if you were here before, you'll remember, we talked about how that's ordered love. It's organized in such a way that we experience the two other forms of love before we get to that top point. So the way that God has wired people, the way God has written his story into creation includes those two previous forms of love, which are companionship and intimate friendship. And so the way to rightly approach the power of intimacy and sexual love is through the lens of companionship. Remember, you just enjoy being together and through this intimate friendship, this trust and this rapport. That doesn't mean that it always leads in that direction, but those are the healthy steps that God desires. In these two verses, the woman is speaking. She's inviting her lover to go on an adventure with her. And at the very end of that adventure is this promise of dode, this promise of intimacy. It's a beautiful section of the poem. Unless you're lonely, 
unless you're going through a season in life where you feel disconnected from other people, where you long for a relationship, and it's not there. If you're lonely, if you're single, if you're going through a season in life where you're just kind of feeling isolated, reading sections like this of Song of Solomon is really hard. I think we just need to recognize that. There's this beautiful description of, of an adventure together, and you're, you're off in the woods, and it's great. But that doesn't cure the loneliness, necessarily. Now, of course, this brings up one of our great challenges anytime we talk about loneliness. How do most of us try to fix being lonely? We try to fix being lonely by doing something by ourselves. <laughs> like, I'm lonely, I need to do something about this. That in and of itself is kind of a logical fallacy. Like, if I'm lonely, how can I fix it? Like, what, what can I go do about it? Theoretically, we want to step into community. We want to call our friends. We want to be around people who we really love. But let's be honest. If you're really struggling with loneliness, you're not super motivated to reach out to somebody else. And that's what loneliness does to us, is it drives us further and further into that sense of isolation. And so the pathway forward that I want to suggest for us is actually about our focus. It's not about necessarily surrounding ourselves quickly with people. It's about what we are focusing on. So the imagery in this section of the text, verses 11, 12, two people in love, going on an adventure, surrounded by beauty, it's great, but if we make it ultimate, it will crush us. If we make any image of beauty, any sense of, oh, I'm not there, I should be there, if we elevate that and give that the highest value and the highest purpose in our lives, we're going to be in trouble really quick. The text does not tell the man and the woman to love the beauty that surrounds them. Beauty's great. Being out in nature, hiking, exploring, that's all wonderful. But we are not called to love that in such a way that we think it'll replace or remedy our loneliness. And this is where we have to talk about pornography for just a minute. Pornography's toxic effect on our entire culture, our whole lives, men and increasingly women, is incredibly multifaceted. But one of the most destructive effects that it brings into people's lives is to make the image the thing. The image of whatever, of two people or whatever's in front of you, pornography removes personhood. It takes an image of a human being and says, this actually isn't a human being anymore. This is an object. This is something meant to be consumed. This is just a thing we're supposed to look at. That's not somebody's son. That's not somebody's daughter. That's just a thing. And it degrades personhood in a way that few things do. It treats people like they're objects and like they're part of the beauty of the landscape that we're just supposed to enjoy and not in a way that actually reflects the personhood behind it. That's exactly the opposite of what our hearts actually need. Our hearts need real people to surround us. That's why terra firma is the, the title of this section. We need to be with real people in real life. The text helps us see how easy it is to get fixated on images because these images are beautiful, right? The way that they're talking about their love and their desire for one another, it's great. But to elevate that will not bring us life and not to pine for mere imagery. In Christ, we, all, we are always called to live in the here and now. He always meets us where we are. And because of that, we can look at things like pornography and say, you know what, that's not real. I don't want to engage with that because it actually isn't real. No other faith that I'm aware of in the entire world takes things that happen in real time, in real life, like suffering, like disappointment, like major changes in our lives, and says, God is in charge and God can redeem this. God is in charge, and God can redeem this. So, if in talking about pornography, you're thinking about somebody you love, or if it's taken a chunk out of your own life, or if you're really in the midst of it right now, hear this gospel truth. Redemption will come through this. 
There is nothing more powerful than Jesus' redemption, and it pushes through even the worst things that we can come up with. And this will happen, I would say, by focusing not just on the beauty that we can find in a Google search. It is, fo- it is found by focusing instead on the real presence of Jesus, by developing practices in our lives that allow us to think about him, to pray and listen and engage with him in such a way that he increasingly becomes your focus. His love casts out fear. His love casts out addiction. And we need his love, which, to go back to our theme of old and new, the love that we can trace into the past that is reflected in the scriptures and in the stories of Jesus and in the past that we have had with Jesus Christ, those powerful moments if you're a disciple of Jesus where he has touched you, where he has shaped you, where he has changed your life or the life of someone you love. When we are facing those moments of loneliness, when we're facing fear or facing our addictions, those are the things that when we focus in on them, we will find freedom because they're from Jesus Christ. Okay. That's the end of the hard word about pornography. So parents can take earmuffs off if you put them on. Now let's talk about memory and adventure. Uh, Turn with me to verse 13. Verse 13 is kind of weird. It's a little hard to describe. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Uh, Most of the commentaries I read said that this is one of the hardest uh, verses to translate. Like, they were just like, we, we don't really know what to do with this, which is kind of funny when really good Bible scholars say, like, uh, it might be this, it might be this. So it sounds weird because it's hard to translate, A. B, mandrakes uh, is not a term many of us throw around, but mandrakes were a type of plant that in the ancient Near East were believed to have uh, effects in terms of virility, in terms of fertility. So it's kind of an analogy to that whole thing, to childbearing and getting pregnant. The choice fruits part of it is also kind of a mystery. Most commentators don't really know what to do with that. But that's where I think the theme we've been working with of new and old is going to become helpful to us. And I think this is where we're going to find some really helpful pieces of application. In the eyes of the original audience of this text, the concept of storing up food was totally normal, very familiar. If you lived in this day and age, you would not have been able to go to Costco when you ran out of apples. You would have had to have preserves. You would have had to have stuff at home. So having food around your house that was both fresh and ready to go and from the field and all that kind of thing, and having food that you were storing up in case of a famine, that would have been normal. Like most families would have sort of had that in their minds. So that's the original reference point in the text. But let's connect that to our lives today. First, remember who you are in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christ follower, some part of you has been reshaped or reformed or torn down and built back up again because of the way that you have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, the way that he has led you to follow him. Remember who you are in him. In a way, this aspect of our identity, whether you follow Jesus a long time or you're new to this whole experience, that's home base. So let's go with the scenario that a lot of us have been through. Let's say you start a new job or you uh, start a new relationship. We all know this, but the first thing that you do when you start a new job or start a new relationship is what? You figure out what that other person likes. You figure out what is considered to be good in the company that you're a part of. And as a result of that, the temptation is to change who we are. And that hardly ever works. Because the way to enter into any sort of new season is not to immediately adapt to the context, change who you are, and sort of move on. The way to enter into a new season, whether it's a new job, new relationship, new baby, is to hold to who Jesus has made you to be and what he has taught you about yourself 
and the ways that he has wired you. You get to lean into who God has made you to be, which is first and foremost, someone who lives in a posture of dependency. A child, a sheep, any of these analogies from the scriptures that aren't meant to belittle people, that are meant to remind us like, yeah, I really need help. Like I'm really stuck without you, Jesus. And we are continually in that posture of dependence. When we remember that we are beloved, that we have been made into God's treasure because God gave up his treasure, Jesus, for us. Then whenever we face new challenges, whenever we get into that new job and we just don't know what to do with ourselves, whenever the relationship we're in goes sideways, we are not adrift at sea. Not because of how strong we are, but because of the story that Jesus has written into our lives. It is who you are in Jesus that will carry you through those times. Lean into him and what he has taught you throughout your life. Another encouragement, especially if you're uh, blessed with an abundance of time or you don't have little kids running around your house, is to use the God-given freedom that you have to explore new things, to find new spiritual disciplines, to go to new places of depth and intimacy with Jesus Christ. So again, back to that old and new analogy. Remember who you are, remember the past, but also remember that there's a continual call to adventure when we follow Jesus. Maybe that means you get to go on one of our global partners trips and go see what God is doing in another part of the world. Maybe it means you take on a new spiritual discipline. When I was single, I tried to practice Sabbath really well. Like I tried to make sure that on my day off, I would lay aside the tools of my trade. I would not try to do any kind of work. I would just try to frame it in such a way that it was a special day that I could just give to God for rest and renewal. And I was doing that more or less since college and kind of through my early 20s. And I had an abundance of time. Like I probably could have had a Sabbath like a bunch of days, but I chose to have it on one day. Can I tell you how valuable that is to me now? Can I tell you what a gift that is to my family that I by the grace of God, have a decent rhythm around Sabbath, around being home, around turning my brain off and just being present with my kids. And I practiced it when I was single and I had a bunch of time on my hands. And now that I don't have a lot of time on my hands, it's really, really valuable. So what are the things that if you do have time on your hands that you can experiment with, that you can try out, that you can use to grow your faith so that when these busier seasons come, if that's what God desires for you, you will have that sort of sense of who God has made you to be in those moments. So now let me share something specifically uh, for married people. This is kind of related to the new and old thing as well. Couples that I respect who've been married a really long time are good at discovering and enjoying new things together. They have this wonderful curiosity about them. Like people who've been married 30, 40 years, they're trying out new things. They're going on new adventures If they never go to the movies, all of a sudden they start going to the movies together, and that becomes one of their dates, and they go talk about the movies. If they love to travel, they're always looking for new places to go. If they never take a walk and just walk around the neighborhood, they start doing that, and they see this renewal in their relationship. And that's just an encouragement to those of us who are married. Find new things to discover together. Keep leaning into the old things. Keep leaning into these new things. You've got to have both to be able to thrive. One of the the greatest gifts that has ever been given uh, to my wife and I is a little book, and we call it the Book of Blessings, but it's like a notebook, right? So picture like a spiral-bound notebook, except it's got a nice cover on it with like a Van Gogh painting on it. And this was given to us by one of the pastors that officiated our wedding. And he and his wife gave it to us, and they said, 
instead of buying each other birthday cards, Mother's Day cards, Father's Day cards, anniversary cards, write little notes to each other in this book. Write something about the other person or write a little story or remind each other of something. Uh, every time uh, Jill has told me about a new baby coming, that's been written in this little book. So that's kind of a fun way. Like when she hands it to me, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. We have that book of blessings. And I told a friend of mine about it. And he said, oh, wow, that would be one of the things you would save from a fire. Like if you got your family out of your house and every, everybody else was safe and your house was on fire, you go back for that book. And I was like, yes, I would. <laughs> I really would. That is one of the ways that God has allowed us to keep in touch with the old and the new. What about you? How will you keep in touch with that this week? I'll finish by sharing a poem uh, with us that has just meant a lot to me. I've actually tried to commit it to memory. It's from a guy named John Newton. John Newton was actually a slave trader for many years. He lived in the uh, late 19th and, or excuse me, late 18th and early 19th century. He was a slave trader in England. He actually piloted the ships that had slaves on them. And then he came to Christ, and he took a look around, and he said, this, we can't keep doing this. And so he actually became one of the chief abolitionists of his day. And he wrote a poem that I'll share with us that has really been an encouragement to me, and I offer it to us as an encouragement as well. He's talking about Jesus. His love in times past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle, then he will perform. With Christ in my vessel, I smile at the storm. That is our God who guides us through old and new and deeper into his service, through whom we can smile at any storm. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for the challenge of Song of Solomon the challenge of listening, the challenge of depending on your word. And now we hold out to you these moments of reflection where we can say, God, what would you have me take from these moments? What did you want me to hear? How do you want me to respond? As we join our hearts together again in singing and in worship, I ask you, Lord, to take the things that are good, the things that are of you from these moments, and lift those things up, and the things that are unnecessary or distracting, would you just fade those things quickly from our memory? Thank you for the call to intimacy. Thank you for the call to trust and vulnerability. May we do so now better informed by your word. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.